Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, well, then you know that today's podcast has been a long time coming. At last, we're about to hear Brother David Stendel Rast read the second chapter of The Rose of Paracelsus by Leonard Picard, followed by commentary from Mark Schoenemann, and comments by the producers of this program, Alexa and Kat Lakey, as well as some comments from Leonard Picard himself. This is a long program today, and so I'm going to keep my comments to a minimum. However, at the end of this podcast, I am adding a brief message about the current world situation as we struggle with a global pandemic, an economic catastrophe, environmental destruction, and widespread racism and police brutality here in the United States. If ever there was a time to listen to some calm voices, I think it's probably now. So here are the Lakey sisters who will introduce today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the next installment of William Leonard Picard's The Rose of Paracelsus on Secrets and Sacraments. My name is Alexa. And my name is Kat. This is the third episode of the series. So if you are unfamiliar with this podcast, we recommend going back to listen to our introductory episode, explaining Leonard Picard's story, as well as chapter one of the book titled Highlander, which is read from inside a maximum security prison by Leonard himself. This episode is unique in that this chapter will be read by the world-famous Benedictine monk, Brother David Steindl Rost. Brother David is 93 years old and may seem like a bit of an outlier in the series. But you'll hear a recording from Leonard in a bit explaining a strange coincidence which led him to be involved with this podcast. Brother David recorded Chapter 2 from the Gut Eich Priory Monastery in Austria. He has, in the past, been a monk of Mount Savior Benedictine Monastery in New York, dividing his time between hermetic contemplation, writing, and lecturing. He's the co-founder of Gratefulness.org, supporting ANGL, a network for grateful living. He was one of the first Roman Catholics to participate in Buddhist-Christian dialogue. He's the author of several books, including The Ground We Share, a text on Buddhist and Christian practice, Gratefulness, The Heart Prayer, and Deeper Than Words. He also has several viral TED Talks, which have been viewed millions of times. We'll provide a link to these in the description of the episode. After the reading concludes, we'll hear some commentary on the chapter by theologian Mark Yuhan, where he'll discuss some of the underlying themes. But first, here's a recording from Leonard himself, discussing how Brother David came to be part of this project. Dear friends, this is Leonard calling to say a few words about Brother David. As you can imagine, Brother David is 94, 6'6". He often writes and speaks in a white cowl. He observes the Benedictine hermitage for about six months a year, that is, living in silence and peace with his studies and his prayers. I have an anecdote about Brother David that you might find of interest of how this recording was made. Brother David was 19 when the Nazis invaded Austria. He got his PhD from the University of Vienna, came to the United States, uh, entered the Benedictines. 
and was instructed by the Vatican to investigate Buddhism in America, uh, which he most successfully did. He was well-loved and well-received in the Christian and Buddhist communities throughout his life. Michael Pollan uh, speaks of the 1994 conferences at Esalen and Big Sur as the origin of medicalization of psychedelics. But there was an earlier conference in 1993 in which the late criminologist Mark Kleiman was there, a RAND uh, researcher, Tom Schelling, studying thermonuclear warfare, Doblin of Maps, David Presti from the University of California. Schelling, of course, was the future Nobel laureate in economics. A gathering of 14 to 15 people in a little cottage in Esalen in 93 was the beginning of the medicalization effort. And Brother David opened it with prayers. And 27 years later, when we were looking for someone to read chapter two, I thought of Brother David, who lived nearby in a hermitage outside of Carmel and was familiar with the Zen Center described in chapter two and all the people that spoken of in the chapter. But I had no way of reaching him. I thought of a friend in Switzerland who might know him and telephoned. Of course, Brother David does not have a telephone. He considers them the modern hair shirt. Amazingly, Brother David was in the car as my friend was driving from Salzburg to Lucerne to bring him to a, a Buddhist meditative sitting. And we had a, a very good talk and a very affectionate talk. And even a laugh about prisons being like monasteries, except the monks were much louder. Brother David then agreed to do the reading, most happily, and promptly left for Argentina, where he spent six months a year, and circled back through Italy, where he had a, an audience with the Pope, and then finally to Gut H. Priory in Salzburg, where he, he lives most of the time, and most lovingly did this recording. And now, here is Brother David reading Chapter 2, titled Beginner's Mind. As always, we highly recommend listeners pick up a copy of The Rose of Paracelsus to follow along. Chapter 2, Beginner's Mind Tanuguchi Bushan On the one-ton temper bell, a moon moth, folded in sleep, Sits still. Bodhidharma. A special transmission outside the scriptures. Not depending on words or letters. Directly pointing to the mind. Seeing into one's true nature. Yates. The winding stair. I'm looking for the face I had before the world was made. James, the portrait of a lady. Le couvent n'est pas comme le monde, monsieur. The convent is not the world, sir. 
Ginsberg, Howl, who vanished into nowhere then. Chapter 2 begins here. There is the scent of lilacs. I am facing a wall, seated on a cushion in a monk's formal sitting robe, legs crossed and back straight. Across the darkened hall, an incense offering burns. I notice my breath as it flows in and out and focus upon it. Distractions appear in the form of thoughts and feelings, sounds and light, in physical sensations from the disciplined posture. These go away for a while, then reappear. I think of plants and people, feel anxiety and desire, hear the faint muffled traffic, and see upon the wall a shaft of sunlight. Within this eternal circle of perceptions, I have fleeting moments of pure consciousness. The Dalai Lama has described this essence of mind as clear and all-knowing. We are practicing at Hoshinji Beginner's Mind Temple in San Francisco, the oldest and largest training monastery in America in Soto Zen tradition. We practice arts from the lineage of Japanese Zen master Dogen from 1250 AD. It is a place of ancient courtesies and unworldly kindnesses, each morning opening into the rose window of the East. As heirs of the final teachings of Hoshinji founder Junryo Suzuki Roshi, we are the residents for months, years, or a lifetime. We learn about simple but difficult mental practices, about graceful conduct, aesthetics, and perfections of manner, and, within all of those, the iron rail of discipline. After Sazen, or meditation, we engage in calligraphy, hibana or flower arranging, chano yu or tea ceremony, gardening, and service of the dying. As a path to enlightenment or big mind, some Soto monasteries also may practice the martial arts of Aikido, the non-injurious rendering of physical aggressions, by their momentum to the floor, the soft, elegant litanies of Hoshinji are merciless as diamonds. Indistinguishable from one another, 50 cent priests, monks, nuns and students sit side by side facing the wall in the Zendo or meditation hall a rectangular room in the 16th century style with a hand-polished wooden floor and elevated areas for sitting meditation. 
Sometimes our restless normal consciousness, affectionately labored monkey mind, ceases playing, subsides, and becomes quiescent. We occasionally gain glimpses of no mind, the space between thoughts. It is completely silent and just before dawn. Outside, through the zendo walls of rebar and brick, we hear two young lesbian lovers frantically clutch and rip each other's clothing, pressing against doorways, sobbing, their footsteps shuffling back and forth in attraction and repulsion. They're coming down hot, and jangles crashing from their long sleepless night. They yearn at loss and gain, the fear and surrender, the tantalizing promise of new couplings, the tender fruitless urgencies cry to unify the spirit through flesh. Their voices are without bodies. Don't go! I hate you. I can't be with you anymore. Please don't go. I love you. I gave you all my coke. Convulsive tears, they run up and down the alley behind Hoshinji, past the monks sitting in silence. Passion and calm are separated by an aged, impassable wall, embossed with wet lichen and lapped by the city's mists. We hear the cycle of unsatiated cravings, the pleading and chasing and embraces and tearing away and returning, the long, low moaning. For them, it is an ugly and poignant hour when samsara, the illusion of the world, becomes delirious imaginings unchecked passion and the cruel severing of their hearts. Their anguish fades in the barely perceptible sounds of distant motors, opening doors, salsa music, the ignition of engines, children's voices ready for school, drunks shouting execrations. Two junkies from nearby projects Prowl, trash cans, and mutter like aimless lunatics already jouncing for the next fix. The background becomes subdued as we attend to the breath. It is quiet once again. There remain only the whistles of swifts as if from abbey walls and the smell of rain-shining streets. No one moves, not a word is uttered. We sit in silence, awaiting the next manifestation of thought and feeling, sound and light, bodily sensations, before it is lost on the out-breath. A haiku by Zen poet Basho arises. Below the autumn tempest rages, while above the sky is motionless. A bell is struck softly, 
the sitting period is ended. We turn to our cushions, gather our flowing robes, and stand simultaneously with eyes lowered, hands folded, one upon the other. As the bell rings again, we turn left together. From the sendo, a single file, we slowly walk away. I have entered this world by begging admission the same day as released from prison. Captive for a misunderstanding about laboratory equipment, one had been consigned to a hellhole of lethargic suffering. By this different confinement of monastic practice, I seek healing and purification, a cloistering from endless brutality. For a thousand years, supplicants meditated by temple gates for weeks until their earnestness was recognized by passing monks. My years of isolated meditation in the midst of knives and blood may be apparent. Possessing only the second-hand clothes I wear, remnants from a cardboard box that day, I ask for refuge and am given shelter. The howling violence, the ferocity of oppression is gone now. My body is lean and tight from relentless exercise beneath rows of razor wires in nameless, lonely yards. Monasteries, some say, are places for desperate people. I begin to walk these halls past perfectly placed lilies, minimalist art, sculptures and paintings where each of us bows in passing with hands pressed near the heart in prayer or gasho. Contemplative mindfulness reigns. Such frequent bowing traditional among Japanese and highly cultured in Zen practice is explained to Westerners as lowering the mast of the ego, so that others can be seen more clearly. The slightest loudness, anger or vulgarity is seized upon and distinguished through examination and insight. With each step, I thank the good Lord that Buddhists do not recognize or the spirit that is the mystery, or the essence of mind for this blessing, this teaching. Late at night, I sometimes wander alone in the empty silent halls, freedom's shadow emptying and splashing, and see through the tall windows under a clear sky the high-riding moon. Yet the monastery is proving far more demanding than gun towers. I slowly am making progress 
in not being an unruly creature, unconscious of these graceful, steely arts. As we practice before first light, I always returning to the pool of silence. A tall, gaunt priest one day announces in a dreamy, true voice a haiku to help us cultivate body, speech, and mind. Rhinoceros, crashing through the underbrush, becomes white deer in the moonlight. I have stumbled directly into Rohatsu Seshin, the winter seven-day silent period that even for monks with 30 years of practice is a rigorous, even grueling, continuous meditation. It is broken only by highly formal meals, or oryoki, and walking meditation, or kinhin. This stringent, scrupulously detailed practice involves such absolute attention that I become a prisoner again, not of the gross, but of the subtle. A few of the new students physically shake during meditation, as random or powerful images manifest. Others, relaxing deeply for the first time, re-depress old memories in silent tears. Some may flee rather than continue to look inside. The monks consider these first phenomena as distractions by an egoless than eager to observe itself. Occurring not infrequently among beginners, they are called makyo. A single small window high upon the wall opens to the edge of a pale and bloodless late moon. Behind us, as we face the wall, is the long hours of Zazen, we hear the almost imperceptible passing bare feet, the rustle of a robe, as a priest slowly circumambulates the zendo. A phantom, he carries a long wooden awakening stick, the kiyosaku, he stops to administer it upon the shoulders or backs of students who posture it flagging. My form is perfect, but not perfect enough. Courteous monks, unto death he bows, then he strikes me. At the startling impact, my spine elongates, the thrill of alertness heightening awareness until the flames of bodily sensation are recognized. They pass away like the many worlds that come and go. After a moment, there is neither pain nor pleasure.
at the end of morning sazen, before an identical afternoon and evening, a priest rings a bell for the ritual service of Oryoki. We do not ramble to the dining room, but bow to the wall, turn together to our cushions, then produce our Oryoki set. Facing each other now, with eyes lowered, hands in prayer, we all bow again in a single hush of robes. Within a square white cloth, tied twice at the diagonals, are a white ceramic bowl, a wooden spoon, a pair of chopsticks, and three nested lacquered bowls. All are arranged within a certain perfection. Still in sasim posture, legs crossed, we open the cloth and place each item upon it in the prescribed order. Chopsticks in the wrong direction or not parallel is a flaw in the Oriochi practice, as is the small lacquered bowl placed to the left rather than to the right, or the cloth not tied properly. We are training not to be obsessive, but also to be mindful of small things. We each lay our Oriochi set as silently as possible, then wait until the last of the fifty persons is done. We all bow as one. The Eno, head of Sendo practice, claps his two blocks of wood together to signal several servers in robes queued by the Sendo doorway. Each server carries a single large bowl of rice, vegetables, tofu or sliced fruits appears in a silent row. The food is the most pure and adequate. There is no feeling of renunciative philosophy or being lost in the desert, purging guilt or a diet of locusts and wild honey. The serving monks and nuns walk in single file, not to the nearest person, but circumambulate entire zendo, passing everyone. Then arrive to stand before the first recipient, who is holding her hands in prayer. Both bow to each other. She offers her large lacquered bowl, one of the three, by first raising it to the forehead as a bow with her hands full. The server with the rice stand bows, steps forward, ladles out a portion of rice, steps back and bows. The second server then bows, 
The process continues until all of the first recipient's bowls are filled. All bow again. The next person then is served. With this formal procedure continuing through all 50 people, the abbess is served last, even after beginner students. I realize that the unearthly din of confined men no longer is heard. It is replaced by the nuns' murmurs of devotions, their soft countenances, in this antipode of Hades' past. A formal orioki service may require a half hour or more. Not a word is spoken. No one moves other than to bow. The Eno, seeing everyone served, strikes a bell for the meal, prayer, or gata. We chant in part in honor of those who grow and bring food. We should know how it comes to us. Desiring the natural order of mind, we should be free from greed, hate, and delusion. The bell rings, and we begin to eat our rice thoughtfully, drinking our miso soap, and consume slowly the mixed fruits in the small lacquered bowl. We taste each flavor, feel each texture. I reflect on the almost 2,000 days in the madness of prison chow halls, the surely angry line shuffling to receive through a porthole in a cement wall plastic trays filled with industrial byproducts the lowest quality processed food for penal institutions and carelessly heated in vats. A Shigella outbreak, hospitalizations, 80 inmates because a worker placed feces into the food. Meals are consumed hastily as guards shout threats. Kitchen workers steal as much as possible. Tightly crowded tables are filled with murderers, addicts, and dysfunctional and crazed, the clearly evil. Dark countenances strain the smile from any face. But all that is gone now and I dare lift my eyes slightly for the briefest of moments to see these many people practicing this ancient art. I now am surrounded by children of light. Remembering to return to the breath and at this moment to Ryoki service, I pick up the last grain of rice with chopsticks, for these portions are just enough to sustain practice.
Each person wipes their bowls with a sliver of daikon pickled radish, then eats the daikon. The eon, seeing everyone has finished, claps the blocks and then servers reappear with pitchers of hot water, repeating the bowing procedure one by one, which each person swirling the hot water in their bowls, drinking the water, then drying the bowl with the orioki cloth. Through the high small window, the buttery dawn of light is now a pastoral blue. A whipping rain has ceased. The thin rays of the sun touch the ceiling. The first of three daily orioki meals is finished. The bowls are nested, the cloth tied in the formal manner. We, as one, place the orioki sets next to the wall and to the right of the zafus or sitting cushions, the times of cages, of beggared friendships and destroyed love are no more. A bell sounds to begin the all-day meditation in the first of seven silent days. We bow. This refined and gracious service the simplest of meals and all other ancient forms of Hoshinji are conducted with the same perfection and reverence. About this practice, performed as if each of us were a sacrament, one can never forget. Suddenly I see tattooed faces in prison yards hear the screaming, feel the cruelty of feedlots, the black hole of a human abattoir. I awake to see only the nuns' luminous faces. My internal voice comforts me. This is the right place. On the seventh and last day of Rohatsu Session, in the pre-dawn quietude, the esteemed abbess of Hoshinji glides in her robe behind those meditating and, without a word, touches a monk or student on the shoulder. This is the summoning to Dohatsu, a private interview with the abbess, to discuss difficulties we may be having with the practice. At the touch of the abbess, I arise and follow her to the Dohatsu room. Eyes lowered, I can see only the swaying hem of her robe. For thirty years she has taught the thirteenth-century art of sewing traditional monks' robes, the rakusu, or little robe, and the okesa, the fine priest's robe. 
Each requires thousands of hand-sewn stitches in a manner defined for 700 years. With each stitch, the word Namukyebutsu, the name of Buddha, the first teacher of this way, are softly intoned. Walking three stories up the narrow hallway to the Dohat's room, she enters and closes the door. I wait outside, as is the custom. On either side of the door, we settle for a while. I, with knees folded and sitting on my heels, in Seiza, the alternative pose to the leg-crossing posture of Sazen. After some moments, she strikes a bell lightly. I rise, enter, bow, and sit before her in Seiza. I bow to her three times. She returns the bows. She is in the gold, gray, and brown robes of a Roshi, a direct descendant in the lineage of the first teachers, and one to whom Inca, the seal of illumination, has been transmitted. Her hair is white, shaved almost to the scalp. She sits erect, balanced, intelligent, compassionate. One feels as though one is being diagnosed by a master physician for the malady with no name. We sit in the silence of mutual regard. I try not to waver, for there is no place to hide. We talk for a while before the essential questions. How long will you remain, she inquires, until I am married or accepted to graduate work, I propose, balanced on the gate to a new world. Our practice is very rigorous, some say, very difficult. Will you be able to manage it? My cumbersome efforts in the Zendo are clear to her. New students are obvious, restless, distracted. Confusion and irreverence are like a rock thrown into a pool of moonlight. I have come from a world of men where for five years every hour of the day was highly structured. Awakening, meals, working, sleeping, not unlike here, but less peaceful. I do not describe the white scar of memory, the iron parallelogram in which part of me remains forever. She does not inquire further. From her direction, I feel she knows. Your occupation, she asks. My research interests are in medicinal chemistry, I respond, avoiding memory's spiritual precipice. 
I too was a chemist at the University of California at Berkeley before studying Zen. She explains that she's from Alabama as a girl and has four children. Her husband is with her in the practice. I also am from the Deep South as a youth. She will encourage the Tenzo, the head cook, to include biscuits now and then in the mornings. We smile. Why don't we try it for a while, she says. She gently rings the summoning bell. I bow. She returns the bow and I leave. Bowing a final time at the door, I close it in the way monks enter and, and leave rooms by turning the handle and seating the door soundlessly. Assigned to a lay monk's bare cell, I must move from my comfortable visitor's accommodations. From this moment, I truly enter the monastery for the first time, not as an observer, but as a member of the exquisitely rare community where every small action, sitting, standing, walking, sleeping, speaking, must be conducted with mindfulness. Before descending to my monk's cell, I go to the roof of Hoshinji, where there is a small garden and an expansive view of San Francisco. The brilliant open western sky is blue and hard. The spire of the Korean at the Berkeley campus pierces a low fog across the bay. Its own temple bells are calling the academic faithful to their devotions, to another form of enlightenment. It is a tolling to which I too ultimately must yield, as is my heritage. But reborn in this cleansing practice of Hoshinji, I vow to remain until these precepts can be applied to scholarly effort, to the promise of a new life. To the south lie Stanford and Silicon Valley, their bandwidth electrifying our planet. I bow to that direction in honor of the being we all are becoming. Yet, as a cloud passes before the sun, I notice to the northeast the federal building. There technology is being turned inward upon us through fearsome surveillance methods and databases with millions of files instantly retrievable from monitoring subjects of interest. Against the shadow's coldness, I pulled my sitting robe closely, anticipating that such careful scrutiny 
of the population is leading to Indra's net, the Sufi concept of a universe of eyes looking at each other, but this time in judgment. Perhaps they still consider me as a target, one who inexplicably has gone to ground in a religious retreat. I remember the CIA director of intelligence in the Cold War, Yale poet James Jesus Angleton, who was fond of the phrase, wildness of mirrors. Angleton used to describe the illusion of a straight line, the truth always twists and turns, in any games involving mutual deceptions. Certainly, my own file still exists among the many more worthy of attention, established the same year the DEA was formed. It must be long inactive and poetry its lack of weapons or violence. My robe is flowing in a light wind. The sophisticated machines nearby might fail against the skills of Hoshinji's practice, far too subtle to be comprehended by different breeds. Turning into the monastery, I remember to let such distracting thoughts go now. With gratitude I begin rigorous training, erasing the pain that came before. This clockwork of sustained meticulous effort measures every hour for the next 700 days, perhaps forgetting now by the watchers I have become only a simple monk. At the end of the first year, I still have the same dream, running wildly, escaping from the suffocating to torturing cages. I am pursued relentlessly across bleak and misty landscapes under a cold moon saved by the kiss of a woman never seen. Within this nocturnal sea is heard the wakening bell and the practice day of Hoshinji's begins. The sound of the wakening bell is not the clear resonance of a small singing bowl on a silk pillow in the zendo, an alarming brisk clanging down the hallway seeming to hover near every door, it grows and recedes in magnitude from horizon to horizon like a slow steam locomotive. It is accompanied by the sound of running for a robed monk or nun is swinging a large bell on a wooden handle in broad, 
vertically sweeps, moving through every hallway, up and down the staircases, before vanishing as abruptly as they appeared. I entered the physical realm, tensing hands and legs and stretching, then sit up slowly in the prescribed manner. I am again in my temporary suit of bone and hair and tissue. My body becomes an automaton, working through exercises learned in prison cells, so cramped one can hardly turn. The blood begins to rush. The confined use these routines to survive weeks or months of lockdown from gang violence, to sharpen one's spirit against insurmountable odds. My heart is leaping, lungs gasping. With slow yoga, I recover becoming as a child again, then bow in gratitude. Out the window of this cloistered bare room is only the chill deadness of a winter's night. No surveillance teams lurk on the pavement anymore. No unmarked vans with UHF antennae are down the street. There's only a stark cancelled sky. It is 4.30 a.m. precisely. Slipping on a grey kimono and wearing sandals of tatami mat, I enter a procession of monks, splash cold water on my face to elicit the alerting ref reflex, then return to don a long black sitting robe with full wide sleeves. The tendrils of night visions become frail. We walk mindfully in single file down flights of stairs worn at the center through decades of practice towards the darkened zendo. The awakening bell is replaced by a sharp, methodically singular resounding rap. The repeated concussion of a wooden mallet, administered every two minutes by a robed monk with his back to us upon a suspended flat hardwood ham. Defeating any thought of sleep and acting as a timer before we all must be seated in the sendo, the startling sound of the han echoes insistently throughout the building, quickly soothed by the silence of night. A black swan upon an obsidian lake, we flow in our swirling robes, hands folded, only sandal heels and edges of robe seen by our lowered eyes. 
We are silent apparitions. There are no whispered salutations or any words of interaction, just the movement of robes, a silent peace train. The monks facing the Han stands immobile awaiting the exact moment for the next strike. I lift my eyes to the inscription carved into the Han, a wide, thick hardwood flat suspended from the ceiling by ropes. Its words are the first we see each day. Awake! Awake! Great is the matter of birth and death. All things are passing. Don't waste this life. We each enter the darkened sendo on the left foot and bow. The Eno, head of practice, bows and instructs us where to sit. A single votive burns. Not gazing about, we stand by our tan, the elevated sitting area, all facing each other. Upon a bell sounding, we bow simultaneously, turn to the left, then sit in sazen posture on our safu cushion to face the wall. The hand is struck faster once each minute for five minutes, then every 15 seconds, then every second, then as rapid as staccato as the monk can manage before stopping. Then, after a pause of five seconds, a final very loud rap penetrates every crevice of Hoshinji. We all begin meditating. It is 5 a.m. The monk by the Han strikes a heavy wooden mallet on a massive 300-pound iron densho bell, its surface covered with Japanese sutras. Each stroke produces inescapable deep sonorous vibrations felt at the cellular level. The monk strikes the bell three times, letting each ring completely subside, a pause before the next strike. The sound is of utter gravity. It is rung once for the Buddha, the Indian Prince Siddhartha Gautama, who first developed this mental practice. The second is for the Dharma, the teaching arising from the realization. The third is for the Sangha, the community of those who practice the way. The swirling swans have become black crows 
side by side on a power line to the infinite, to big mind. With heightened wakefulness, they step back from the restless cortex and examine psychic contents with great attention. Past the wall, much of the city still slumbers. Our thoughts are like incense, rising, curling, and vanishing. Our limited human awareness awaits the miraculous impossibility of the day. Through the high and narrow window, and just below the edge of the world, dawn beginnings to illuminate the eastern sky. Externally, meditation is quiescent, motionless. Within, transcendent rivers of mind merge and flow in the darkness. I am not so skilled, and on an in-breath, clusters of vivid images erupt. Memories of volunteering in emergency rooms, the trauma unit of San Francisco General Hospital, Four dying 19-year-olds, double dates, now screaming on gurneys. A vehicular mass casualty from the driver's cocaine overdose and cardiac arrest. Only 20 minutes earlier, they were speeding over the Bay Bridge, Music blasting, laughing, drinking, snorting, lines rushing, horning, clutching the silky thighs, unconscious of the beast about to pluck them all. Two survive, shrieking to their voiceless friends, now quiet as death. Blood everywhere. The driver's ribcage sliced open without anesthetic, pried apart with a steel rib spreader for hands-on direct massage. The most extreme remedy, life's last chance. Every resident is there, crowded together with victims, Nurse, attendings, paramedics. A resident calls the death at 5.13 a.m., just as it is now. All walk stunned from the trauma room to their private confrontations with God before the next patient in a line that never ends. Left alone, I say a prayer for the young man, holding his lukewarm hand while no one is looking. His eyes are open, grassy like a doll. I close them, remove the rib spreader, and glance at the exposed heart. 
Hanging and still, I slip a body bag over him. The janitor, a very elderly black man, mops a floor, slick with carnage, squeezes out the mop, says nothing. A resident approaches, we seal the bag, the victim's face disappearing. We push the gurney to the morgue. We talk a while to come down from seeing fresh spirits so suddenly devoured. We hover between the two worlds. Colors seem unreal. Faces look away. We change subjects, for Armageddon's cold visage has passed us by this time. There is no greater privilege than the witnessing of life and death. I apply to medical school, work at the trauma unit, death main stage on Saturday nights. I see everything. Dying junkies with scars like ropes, Latinos deranged on PCP with lacerated skulls from baseball bats, their wrists broken from struggling with handcuffs to gurneys, countless young mothers in wheelchairs delivering in elevators as life gives and takes away. The wealthy and prominent rendered mute and helpless by stroke, now quickly discarded. My own world dies, for I am arrested over some disputed laboratory equipment from a recycler. My acceptance to medical school arrives in jail the same week. I kiss the letter and pray for guidance. Five years follow, smothered in steel enclosures, born again now, sadness, failing, falling useless. With only a beginner's mind, not yet quick to notice long-submerged feeling, arises. I finally recognize the florid cognitive display of this macchio de-repressed from the subconscious. I awaken to return to the breath. The Machio resolves itself in a vow to act compassionately. It seems so simple. I become as a tranquil, clear stream. A soft bell sounds and the spell is broken. Each morning for several hundred days I gather my robe stand, turn, and walk in silent single file with all monks and nuns 
to the Buddha Hall. It is empty, except for elaborate figures of Buddha, Bodhisattva and Kannon, goddess of compassion, all above an altar with votive candles, incense and flowers. On a shelf there are small wooden boxes containing the ashes of past residents at Hoshinji. Fifty tatami mats and black zafu cushions are in order on the floor to seat us into two groups, each with rows of monks and nuns facing each other. Priests in Okesas walk between us to the altar, lay prayer cloth, then kneel and touch their bow brows to the floor. We all together kneel three times as well, then collect our robes and sit in Zazen. We bow as one, as a drum and a large wooden fish, the Mokyugo, are struck in time for chanting, in Japanese or English, a steady slow beat commences. With our deepest voices, we chant the Heart Sutra for 700 years recited each morning in Soto Zen monasteries throughout the world. The monks chant in Japanese, there are many voices in a basso profundo described as a deep abiding or being settled in the heart of being alive, or like walking on the Makkahanya Haramita Shingyo, an English fragment being form is emptiness, emptiness form, not born, not destroyed, not defiled, not immaculate, not increasing, not decreasing, in emptiness no form, no feeling, no thought, no volition, no consciousness, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sound, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no vision, no ignorance, and no extinction of ignorance, no old age and death, and no extinction of old age and death, no suffering, no origination, no stopping, no path, no cognition, no attainment, and no no-attainment, no hindrance, no fear. At the ceremony's end, still heady with chanting, we turn and file into the hallway, to queue before the Ino. She is standing in her robe and kimono, her hands in prayer. Each person approaches and leans close to her, where the Ino dispenses the work order for Soji, the temple cleaning period. She bows and whispers. 
third floor hallway, garden, street, toilets. We lift the fine black sleeves of our sitting robes, tie them with two strands of cloth sewn into the robe and roll up the kimono sleeves. The prize assignments are the toilets. The monks vie for this location in humility already known to me from the prison years of scrubbing cells on hands and knees. I sweep the sidewalk around Hoshinji in robe and sandals at 6 a.m., clearing away leaves, candy wrappers, cigarette butts, and, from the hedge, the crack vials, wine bottles, and prophylactics from the nearby projects. Busy commuters stalled in traffic hardly glance at us. This being San Francisco, perhaps mistaking us for Catholic novices in a seminary. Summer and winter, in light rain or mist, only the mindful sweeping and the commuter's hurried frustration occupy the dawn streets. The paranoia from incarceration fades into a certain peace. I no longer sense or imagine government teams indented parked cars down the streets, for their ghosts have been fled with the light. There remains for any observers only the dreary spectacle of a monk sweeping with head down day after day, reciting softly spoken prayers. I have become nothing special. One morning, in the pearly dawn from a receding fog, a young beginning Zen student who has traded in chronic cannabis, alcohol, and caffeine use for clarity of mind through the practice inches close by as we sweep with our brooms. After weeks of wrestling with sense, difficult merger of delicate forms with absolute discipline, he divulges quietly a certain truth. Now I know why this place is considered the Marines for Seekers. I smile, but continues weeping. On the second floor of Ho Chinji, one encounters a small alcove with the tami mats, flower offerings or candles, all before a black lacquered statue of a figure in robes carved from Bolina's pearl. It depicts Shunryu Suzuki Roshi the founder of Hoshinji, and 
the sister monasteries of Green Gulch and Tassahara. And arguably, then in America. Although Suzuki Roshi passed away many years ago, once each week, since then, after morning ceremonies, our lines of monks congregate on the stair below the effigy to chant and in honor of his teachings. Once in place and everyone silent, a diminutive elderly Japanese woman appears, gray hair pinned back, walking with tiny steps from an adjacent hallway to cross before us. She and the priests bow to the effigy, light incense, recite Japanese prayers and bow again. Our low-honoring chant fills the hallways, passing into silence. At the end, the single small Japanese woman, affectionately known as Okusan, our temple mother, slowly and very reverently bows alone three times to Suzuki Roshi's statue, hands in prayer. She turns and bows to the priests, then to us, the monks and nuns, cascading down the stairway. She folds her hands and with great dignity walks away into the recesses of Hoshinji, not to be seen again until the following week. The ceremony is conducted over the decades since Suzuki Roshi's death, never failing, never changing. For a year, I assume that Oksan is simply an aged nun. Finally, I whisper on the stairway, why does Oksan come each week? A nun, Changsan, hands in prayer, whispers back, why, that is the widow of Suzuki Roshi. She appears each ceremony in devotion to her husband for 30 years. Whenever Oksan bows now, my secret self only can bow to her in veneration. Never forgetting her husband, Okusan evokes memories of some unnamed loss or presence of a future life. Sensitized to the irreplaceable heart by Okusan's quiet honor, I feel emotions like islands in a sea of emptiness. A performance becomes stirring when accompanied by the atonal sounds of a samisen, a geisha, 
in jet black, perfect hair, silk kimono, obisage, and holding a parasol, performs a 500-year-old dance so slowly as to be motionless, with no change of expression on her oval painted white face and small heart-shaped red lips, but only with limited movements of her feet and hands and parasol, she expresses falling in love. She symbolically cuts her hair before a ritual suicide at her plight for a geisha love can never be. The feeling arises again from an old image in the Honshinji library, a mother in ragged kimono, stunned and lost, is carrying her newborn child. Her eyes are unspeakable. She stumbles through a crematorium, the aftermath of the firebombing of Tokyo. Sitting in Sazen, there are memories of fathers forced from their families in prison, visiting rooms of mothers denied the nursing of their crying babies, of a distraught child being carried out prison doors, of their small hands waving goodbye forever of all their hopeless eyes, images manifest of Okusan's reverent bows, the geisha's desperate heart, the lost mother in Tokyo. I see a future where the sad eyes of my own wife and child turn away one day and all seems connected to that wailing darkness where love departs and we are left so very alone. I first noticed Helen, a very elderly nun with snowy hair, when she bows so deeply in Oksan's presence. I often escort her about the monastery, but never ask of this homage. When she becomes infirm, then an invalid, I find a blue silk kimono for her, one with streams and lilacs and branches of laurel. On the night of Helen's death, she shows me photographs of her youth, when she was a sophisticated, attractive, artistic woman in San Francisco's Bohemian with green eyes and red hair in a high French cut. One photograph catches my eye, though of an ageless, blind Japanese woman with one arm. 
Her name is Ichizaki, she taught me Zen meditation, Helen explains, as a very young girl. Perhaps we were six or seven. Tell me of those days. I was the daughter of missionaries in Japan. Those were the war years, the time of starving families, the devastated haunted cities. We were among the last residents of a foreign consulate. Ishizaki and I played by the river under the Sakai Bridge. How did she lose her arm? A sunrise that never ended, a star on earth, a multi-headed dragon that spread across the horizon. It ate the very sky. The image of the slaughtered were written on its face. Hiroshima. I can say nothing but only listen. The poisoned sunlight was shining with the dead faces of sleeping infants. They were carved into a fanatic rictus like white leprosy. I'm hearing her final words. I think she must be dreaming. Evil spirits hung about like great bats then roamed the earth like reptiles among the dying, like beasts in the apocalypse. Perhaps she is delirious. I open her Japanese fan and try cooling her face. We are behind a small soji screen for privacy in her simple spare room. Incense lifts in whirls in the air. I try to bring her back. Where were you both? I was in blue satin and patent leather pumps that day. We were pretending a tea party in the garden of the world estate, singing children's songs. She was laughing and pointing up at the kites when the light blinded her. She staggered outside. The silhouettes of school children were etched into the consulate walls. Mothers with prams, the pink kites, our little friends, the rose garden, all gone. I keep her windows open this last night, flaring at the moon. Somewhere, someone is playing a flute. The shock wave came next. The hollow ring of a trillion banshees the instant flattening of buildings, bridges. And the survivors, what were they like? 
we saw grisly humanoid figures as they collapsed into dust. Japanese families were naked in the river. Their clothes burned off. They looked like great blisters. Some had no faces. Others moved with their arms out, flesh hanging in shreds, as though they were reaching for a lost world. It was so eerie. There were no sounds but for the weeping. Where was your friend? I found her beneath the rubble and drew her out. Her leg was broken, her face burned. Her left arm was in the river with the heads and bodies, the stumps cauterized by the blast. Yet my friend gave me a plum she had kept in her right hand. We shared it and stayed together until the consulate survivors found us. They said we were embracing each other and singing hymns. What were you singing? A song I taught her for her meditation lessons. We sang it over and over until they came. And she began to sing in her frail high voice. We shall gather at the river, the beautiful, beautiful river. Yes, we'll gather at the river that flows by our home up above. Death watch beetles sometimes stick in the timber of Hoshinji until the cool silent engulfs us yet again. Some monks die in Sazen posture, for meditation is like one's death at morning. After Helen's passing, I find an envelope addressed to me in her handwriting. It contains the photograph of her beloved Ishizaki, as though it were a message no one else could read. At the very end of her formal funeral ceremony, with fifty monks chanting to bells and drums, a priest calls out her name to the skies as if she were listening. Helen! We file from the Buddha Hall. Her ashes are on the shelf in a cedar box inscribed in Japanese. 
I often visit the Hoshinji room now with this flowering of roses, the new aspiring violets, the garden scent of limes. There is a plum tree Helen always cared for. I meditate here sometimes, overlooking the city, the last rays of the sun playing like August lions, the sunset below fresh and keen, autumn's cooling is moist, I remain for hours as ruffled feathers of moonlight embrace the city in cobwebs of light and mist. Swallows are gathering below this hermit in extremis. Midnight ravens crow sleepily. I can see all the way up the fretted coast the ocean and mountains are like a Chinese water paint. The world becomes enchanted with lights, an enigmatic fan of planets stretches across the cosmos. Hours pass. There is a high moonlight full of monochrome beauty, the sea drains of its colors. I begin to sing for Helen, fragments of the old rugged cross, chants in Japanese, lines from Mornath Kaddish. I sing Islamic Asan, the call to prayer. Then remember the hymn at the earth's end. Until the light of dawn I sing softly for her. We shall gather at the river, the beautiful, beautiful river. I hear the rustling of black robes behind me, smell incense of green laurel, but no one is ever there. I awaken now at 3.30 a.m. before Sazen, then run through the barren San Francisco street until speechless with fatigue. Sometimes the sky folds back like great wings hovering in the sky. There is a strange confusion of scents from nowhere, jasmine, rose, laurel, blood, sulfur, the head of a newborn. The pavement is cracked and faded, but I still dance a little now and then. For out of darkness, one is moon-splashed with the audience of stars. With the passing of Helen, her memories 
my con conscientious scruples are ignited. I think of the madness of the world, the suffering she described. In the evenings, beginning with only small scribblings on bits of paper, I decide to change reality. For the second time, I apply to med school and, as a gesture to some impossible contact with decision-makers, to the Kenneth School of Government at Harvard. The application has less than stellar transcripts from seven schools spread over decades an admission of the prison years and standardized test scores obtained between controlled movements from one locked area to another. There is a desperate mention of being among the 40 science talent search finalists once Westinghouse and now Intel as a second school remained pertinent. No explanation is given for the curious white space in the curriculum vitae. To med school I propose expanding American medical curricula online for the third world. To Harvard I propose policy research from the perspective of certain special experiences. The applications are truly anomalous, radioactive. I feel foolish, presumptuous, but as a monk I can act only in the service of others. The second round of med school requests for recommendations slowly trickling in together with outright rejections. Hopelessness flourishes. Resigned to continual defeat from years to trampled spirit, I sit in meditation, facing the wall, in my barren room, praying a path will open. A letter appears under the door, the soft padding of a nun's sandals returns down the hall. The Cambridge return address is unsurprising. No doubt it is my rejection by Harvard. Zen practice teaches not to be too reactive to sorrow or joy. So I bow out, sigh, place the letter on a shelf and go to the dining room to arrange tableware mindfully for 50 people at the evening meal. 
I work in the kitchen three weeks under the ten sword head cook for each of us circulates through the duties at Hoshinji. I chop vegetables grown in ocean fields at Gain Gorge Monastery, slicing with methods taught at Tassahara, preparing monks' food for monks. The thin letter remains unopened. It merely confirms again one's failure in life. I wash dishes for 50 people silently. I think of the first blast of white light and how a policy analysis could have influenced decision makers. Achieving surrender by detonating the device 10 miles out in Tokyo Bay. Neglecting the letter for weeks, I sit on the stairs before Hoshinji in the afternoon or sometimes watch children playing in a local park. They are laughing, singing. One day there is a little girl flying her pink kite before the setting sun. At this small omen, I drag myself to the room and see again the dusty envelope. I open it with resignation, for it is like all the rest. It begins in an elegant script. We are pleased to inform you. As I stand in my monk's cell, the universe turns in the pale dusk. I hear the soft rustling of a robe nearby and open my door, but the hall is empty. In this instant, the past becomes not minimalization of thought, but of bathing in them, of entering for years hence an almost wholly foreign environment of unfamiliar books, lectures, deadlines, memorization and finals, all among the most skilled competitors, all in the study of bureaucracies, federal agencies, the military, financial systems, warfare, and non-governmental organizations. I've never thought in these terms before. Sitting on the steps of Hoshinji, I watch the ambulances, the rush of commuters, the derelict with weary eyes, the first stars. With the quiet rhythm of the blood, I think of pink kites and the harmony of all things. I know many entering students are from Oxford or Princeton, the mid-career people from CIA 
or state of the pentagon. The syllabi on topics completely unread in my exclusively scientific undergraduate courses. A new language must be learned. It all seems too much. Yet it is a path from which one must not wander, like being at gunpoint in prison or wintering difficult forms of Hoshinji, derided as a convict, inexplicable to many as a Zen student, but now conferred with the incredibility of Harvard, remain under the changing perception of others, only this simple monk. Down the hallway, already torn about, leaving this perfect community for the trappings of conventional success, I see a hanging scroll in charcoal brush strokes. It is a poem from the Blue Cliff Record, a centuries-old Zen text where the monk Oshin describes two rivers in China, the Shou and the Tam, encompassing the area when Zen was practiced. It reads, South of Shou and north of Tan, the land is filled with gold. Under the shadowless tree, a ferry boat. No one notices in the Emerald Palace. Turning from the calligraphy, I see nearby a kind Chinese nun down on her knees scrubbing the floor. She smiles, places her hands in prayer and bows. Returning this simple gesture for the ten thousandth time, I pass through the silent simplicity of the hall with the flowers placed so very carefully in the spiritual practice of Hibana. I am leaving this refuge, this place of mind, with a sad yearning, a sense of revocable loss. As the final months pass, at every ceremony and with every practice, I drink in the sight that remains forever with me, the black hems of the robes trailing above the floor, the endless bows, the faint smiles beneath lowered eyes. I see the gold of autumn, the noiseless rain, the venues of falling leaves. The Shusou, the head monk, makes a pronouncement to us during Sazen, but I feel it is meant for me. When you step outside the gate, 
The multicolored dragon will eat you up. But remember, this is your home. You can always return. In the last week there, there is a formal ceremony in the Zendo for one leaving the community. The Eno speaks of my assiduous practice with a smile of tolerance, recollecting the ox only dreaming it was a deer. Around me flows a stream of realizations and refined, humble beauty, I'm leaving the womb. The final separation is announced by the sharp, loud, reverberating stamp of a log, wooden staff, on the floor. I fire from the sando for the last time. The morning ceremony is now without my cushion, but I hear down the hall the monks and nuns in sonorous rhythms reciting the Sandokai, the song of the precious mirror. We chanted in Japanese and in English on frequent mornings. Now you have it. Preserve it well. A silver bowl filled with snow. A heron hidden in the moon. Move and you are trapped. Miss and you fall into doubt and vacillation. Turning away and touching are both wrong. For it is like a massive fire. To portray it in literal form is to stain it with defilement. In the darkest night it is perfectly clear. In the light of dawn it is perfectly hidden. Like facing a precious mirror, form and reflection behold each other. In one end, it says nothing, for the words are not yet right. I stand and listen. Light is coming on overhead, as if there were clear story windows high up in the walls. The walled gardens are still rosy, but only with the last blossoms, like a precious mirror or our lives. The monks and nuns are chanting in warm waves. Penetrate the source and travel the pathways. You would do well to respect this. Do not neglect it. With cause and conditions, time and seasons, 
it is serene and illuminating. So minute it enters where there is no gap. So vast it transcends dimensions. A hair-breath division and you are out of tune. Whether teachings and approaches are mastered or not, reality constantly flows. An archer with skill can hit the mark at a hundred paces. But when arrows meet head-on, how can it meet a matter of skill? With practice hidden, function secretly like a fool, like an idiot. To do this continuously is called the host within the host. I fold my robe and kimono in the ritual manner for the trip east. A few clothes Shuton and computer, my only other possessions. This gracious community of devoted monks and nuns in which I have lived for years is to be replaced quite suddenly. I vow to carry the teachings with me always. I know that the next monastery is one of competitive students and learned faculty are striving to solve social problems, world hunger, cyber warfare, overpopulation, bio-warfare. Rather than votives and incense and disciplined holy tranquility, the world soon is becoming strange briefings, books on CIA assessment of threats from rogue states and non-state actors or optimal fleet sizes for nuclear carriers, destroyer escorts. There are no reverent bows on this path, no aesthetic arrangement of flowers, no space between soon relentless thoughts. The next world is a whiplash of conflicting moralities, one as stringent as the transition from the violent chaos of fifty cells to the way. Summoned by the abbess, I appear in the Dokusan room for the last interview. After the respectful bowing, she speaks. And what have you learned here? I describe my limited gasp of the teachings, but feelings of loss soon overcome theologically 
discourse. I will miss you, I cry, coming undone before her for some moments. I will miss you also, she replies gently, bowing a last time. As I bow again at the door, the abbess leaves me with a final teaching. Remember not to let your head get too far from your heart. Gathering my things, I bow deeply in reverence to my monk's room. The stairs and halls already are empty, lonely, without soft smiles. On the 700th day of formal practice, I open the gate of Hoshinji. My old ghost is there, restless and focused, frightened, asking for refuge. The eastern sky is light, with only a hair's breadth deviation Distracted by thoughts of the journey ahead, I step directly into the dragon's mouth. Next up, we have some commentary on the chapter by Mark Yuhan. The child of a German priest and an Estonian witch, Mark Yuhan received his B.A. from Pembroke College, Oxford, and his M.A. at St. John's, Durham. Having been a lay chaplain, researcher, and toy demonstrator, Mark's essays, poems, and talks have been published in the Psychedelic Press Journal, Interfaith Now, and Breaking Convention. He is interested in syncretism, heresy, comparative theology, and the relationship between God and drug. So, what we seem to have in this chapter in many ways, it seems to be the calm before the storm. The storm in two senses here. The storm of being an internationally based trainee academic, on the one hand, and the storm of the, well, I guess you could say the revelation onslaught to come. But it comes clearly very much after a previous storm of sorts. And there are kind of like, I guess, four themes that jump out to me when when listening to this. The main message I get from this chapter compounds the core message of the book, which is to say the, the gift of consciousness, of the sober mind itself, is the greatest source of wisdom that we have. Yes, uh, the book deals evocatively and descriptively in ways where we've all been there, the treasures of altered states. Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of altered states long-reach thinking, envisioning through history and geography. Um, the words do take us on journeys beyond and before the monastery. But these altered states are garnered purely meditatively, and that's not to mistake the meditative state for something unaltered, but it is the sober mind that we must always begin and end with, even and especially in the exploration of the human mind. Secondly, another theme is that the protagonist sticks us into the depths between prison and monastery. An uneasy juxtaposition, 
and one with a delayed cadence, given both his next and ultimate destination, Harvard and prison once more, respectively. I think we must remember, as I'm sure uh, every person in this series of podcasts will, that the book was written, all 650 pages, in prison. Leonard had the luxury of having his muse right in front of him, existing as he does, in a federal prison, though perhaps luxury is the wrong word. As well as the natural mind and the ironic similarities and stark differences between a prison and a monastery, the other main themes which I detect in this chapter involve, third, the integration of past experience and the transformation into a new de-traumatised being. Though it's not explicit in this chapter, this theme of therapy and exorcism still comes out. The exorcism of past demons and the purification of them in the furnace of peace. Whilst later chapters contain multiple explicit exorcisms, even what I like to call sexorcisms, this chapter in many ways gets the ball in motion. How can the exorcist excise without first being delivered from his own demons? And then the final theme to this chapter is not just a work of Victorian-style American Buddhist autoethnography. It is, and this is where my personal hermeneutical biases come in, it is very much a work of comparative religion. Leonard is clearly engaged in a project, as he is throughout the book, of comparative theology and comparative religion. His Christian heritage is betrayed in the corners of sentences, even often in the same breath with the intricacies of his Zen Buddhist life study. This flies in the face of what is a more fashionable standpoint in scholarship today, that is, considering different religions to be incommensurate, immeasurable next to each other. And this hints at the eventual elucidation of the theory of religions which most of the counterculture subscribe to, which is this perennial philosophy, or an alternative form of it called the mystical core thesis. Indeed, Brother David, who read this chapter so beautifully, is himself a Benedictine, and has done much work comparing, among other things, uh, the Christian Apostles' Creed with the Buddhist notion of Patika Samupada, which is conditioned arising or dependent co-origination. It is thus most fitting, I would say, that we have this chapter based in a Zen monastery read to us by an Austrian Catholic monk. Let's be even more specific. A, a Californian Zen monastery, and it's read to us by an Austrian Catholic monk. So, the first image is that of the protagonist sitting on a meditation cushion in Hoshinji, the beginner's mind temple in San Francisco, which is the oldest Soto Zen temple following, we are told, the Zen master Dogen from 1250 AD. It is described as a place of ancient curtsies and unworldly kindnesses. The use of the world, of the word <laughs> unworldly really gets me here. It even makes me trip up on my words. I would have used the term otherworldly if I were writing this, but here is a writer aware of the cruelties of the world. 
it is actually unworldly, the kindness in this temple. Far from the temple being somehow removed above or beyond the world, activities are increasingly engaged with creation. After zazen or meditation, we engage in calligraphy, he writes, hibana or flower arranging, channel yu or tea ceremony, gardening and service to the dying. I think of plans and people, feel anxiety and desire, hear faint muffled traffic, and see upon the wall a shaft of sunlight, he writes. But the kindness, given what has come before, is unworldly. The sober monastic rhythm is not without its revelations, the most prevailing of which is described on page 41. We occasionally gain glimpses of no mind, the space between thoughts, unworldly kindnesses. Hmm. It seems that when Leonard wrote those words, he wasn't simply writing from the perspective of a recently released inmate, though this is certainly implied later on and throughout. The second section details viscerally with the harsh contrast between the violence of cocaine fueled relationships in San Francisco, which they can hear from the monastery, and the peace of the monastery. And I quote again, Tender, fruitless urgencies cry to unify the spirit through flesh. Their voices are without bodies. I hate you. I can't be with you anymore. Please don't go. I love you. I gave you all my coke. The cycle of unsatiated cravings, the pleading, the chasing, and embraces, the tearing away and returning, the long, low moaning. Not to ruin anything for our listeners, but it is precisely instances like this, aggressive, cocaine fueled and poisoned love, which the six take it upon themselves in instances later in the book, to exorcise. Drugs in this context are interpreted demonically, and so now, reading this book for the third time, I feel that there is something proleptic, something predictive in this. But more to the point of this chapter, far from a retreat from the world, this monastery in the metropolis is a clear indication that where restlessness is at its height, calm is most noticed. Where peace is least, their peace is the greatest gift. Where peace is lost, there it is needed the most. To relate this now to something personal in my life, in my meditation practice as a Christian Buddhist, um, I've consistently found that those moments in my life where I'm the busiest or the most hectic, where I've had the most stuff to do in the shortest time available, those are precisely the times where meditation has its deepest benefit, as well as the time where it is most difficult uh, to initiate, to keep at, to cultivate. This is illustrated, if I could borrow a Western monastic term, even illuminated and encapsulated by the poem which Leonard chooses to reflect on with these events. Below the autumn tempest rages, while above the sky is motionless. 
On a personal note, Basho's haiku here uses an image very useful to any meditator, that of a sky with clouds or a tempest. While the mind may be chaotic and filled, underneath it is always still the same being, mind. I would also like to draw our listeners' attention to the exploration of how he got there on page 42. I have entered this world by begging admission the same day as released from prison. This, perhaps, might benefit from some contextual unpacking. The earliest Buddhist monks were referred to as bhikkhus, B-H-I-K-K-U-S, transliterated, uh, a word literally meaning beggars. So, the earliest Buddhist monks referred to themselves as beggars. This notion of begging admission therefore has resonances not just with uh, later Zen tradition, but with the Theravada and the whole of Buddhist society from the origin point to Zending. The first followers of the Buddha were renouncers uh, who chose to leave the continual give and take of economic life to focus purely on the nature of suffering and its cessation for the good of humanity. Beggars were holy. Beggars were monks, literally. And so the protagonist here is moving from the humiliation in jail to the humility of the monastery. In the back of the reader's mind is the question of how this not quite seamless segue began and why he is in prison. It is, to quote further, the reason he's in prison is a misunderstanding about laboratory equipment which led to a hellhole of lethargic suffering, years of isolate suffering in the midst of knives and blood. And so we come to the great juxtaposition of the chapter, the ironic connections between the rigorous life of prison and monastery and the unutterable divergences in philosophy that lie therein. Our protagonist tells us, I ask for refuge and am given shelter. Again, a contextual point is beneficial here for those who may not have studied Buddhism. As a monk, one takes refuge in three things, a Buddhist monk. In the Buddha, in the Dharma, or the way or doctrine, which is impossible to translate, but in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and finally in the Sangha, or the community of beggars, monks. This notion of asking for refuge is an initiatory step, the beginning of the beginner's mind. How could prison, the reader is left asking, how could prison prepare one for this? Um, the protagonist tells us, howling violence, the ferocity and oppression is gone now, yet still his body is lean and tight from relentless exercises beneath rows of razor wire in nameless lonely yards. And monasteries are for desperate people, and yet the monastery is proving far more demanding than gun towers. And in this we return to some, uh, to some of the biggest themes in the book, exorcism or deliverance, integration and transformation, once more illuminated for us by the haiku, rhinoceros crashing through the underbrush becomes white deer in the moonlight. Rhinoceros crashing through the underbrush becomes white deer in the moonlight. 
We also see the beginning of a project here of comparative religion which undercurrents much of the book. Pages uh, 42 and 43, he says, With each step I thank the good Lord that Buddhists do not recognise, or the spirit that is the mystery, or the essence of mind, for this blessing, this teaching. In psychedelic circles, this is perfectly non-controversial. Religions offer uh, different angles on ultimate truth, uh, something which is, in the end, one. But according to many postmodern scholars and recent fashions in this field, what Leonard is doing here is comparing the incommensurate, incommensurable, um, he's comparing the uncomparable, the incomparable. If religions circumscribe um, what it is possible to experience, which is the assumption, then how is it possible to bring the good Lord into a Buddhist temple? Indeed, he even admits that Buddhists do not recognize this good Lord, and yet his Christian upbringing is seen as enhancing his understanding, in spite of, perhaps because of, the contrast. Buddhism, especially in its earliest forms, but also in Zen, and especially in its Western variants, is soteriologically, at least, atheistic. And what I mean by that is, you don't need God to be saved. You save yourself by your adoption of the Noble Eightfold Path, and your seeking refuge, and in the three things that I've mentioned, and changing your perspective gradually. God has little to do with it. Of course, if I may bring two other scholars here, Ninian Smart and Houston Smith, among others, have noted that forms of Buddhism are theism by another name, the notion of the Bodhisattva, for example. But here the protagonist is quite content not only to thank the good Lord of Christianity for the teachings of Buddhism, and in the same breath translate it into a previously alien culture, equating it with the spirit that is the mystery, or the essence of mind. Once more, without giving too much away, this has proleptic association later on in the book, when the actual uh, synthesis of uh, the, the actual synthesis of the sacrament and the rituals of the synthesis are described, but I won't ruin it for you. <laughs> I'll just leave that bit there hanging. You have a lot to look forward to, listeners. Uh, but how does this process of saving take place? The radical report continues, merging themes of of transformation along with the the constant traumatized memories of prison. The Rohatsu Sesin, and forgive me if I've pronounced that wrong, the seven-day silent period broken by oryoki meals and walking meditation, known as kinbin, requires, the protagonist says, such absolute attention that I become as a prisoner again, not of the gross, but of the subtle. Some around him physically shake, quoting again. Others relax deeply through, and I quote, de-repressing old memories in silent tears. Yet more, flee. Run away. All this considered, distractions by an ego less than eager to observe itself. So, a stick is described, a kyosaku is used to administer um, 
and hit the shoulders of those whose posture flags. It is an example of the harshness of the discipline asked by um, asked of the adherents in this temple. In page 44, we are training not to be obsessive, but to be mindful of the small things. The food is the most pure, adequate. There is no, no feeling of renunciative philosophy, of being lost in the desert, of purging guilt on a diet of locusts and wild honey. Here again, we have a critical comparative religious statement. This is not about creating artificial guilt, but the gradual noticing, the being with. On page 45, he describes the monastery as an antipode of Hades' past. Hades' past presumably here means the prison, given the constant parallelisms that he invokes for us. He compares every detail of the past experience to the, uh, you know, every detail of his prison experience to 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 um, the horrors of prison. He compares to the monastery, but and there's this unsettling kind of similarity yet simultaneous radical distinction. And I think it, it might be helpful now to just list a few of these. So. The madness of the prison chow halls, the place where they eat, surly, angry lines shuffling to receive through a porthole in a cement wall, is contrasted to serving monks and nuns walk in single file, not to the nearest person, arrive to stand before the first recipient who is holding hands in prayer. The plastic trays are contrasted to a white ceramic bowl, chopsticks, a cloth tied properly. The recipient offers her large lacquered bowl, first raising it to her forehead as a bow with her hands full. The server with the rice then stops, bows, steps forward, ladles out a portion of the rice, steps back and bows. The second server then bows, the process continuing until all the first recipient's bowls are filled all bow again. This formal process continuing through all 50 people and the abbess is served last. Then he contrasts the unearthly din of confined men no longer heard with the nuns' murmurs of devotions, their soft countenances. In terms of the quality of the food, he contrasts industrial byproducts, the lowest quality processed food for penal institutions, with each person wipes their bowl with a daikon, a pickled cabbage, then eats the daikon. <laughs> it's, it's both charming and unsettling at the same time. Um, carelessly heated in vats, and he's now describing the prison again. So everything has this kind of um, anti-mirror so or some kind of like it's like the, 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 the prison and the monastery are mirrored but they are at the same time so radically opposite at the same time as being uh, as, as there being so many equivalences and resonances and this is the process this is the process of, 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 of um, de-traumering yourself <laughs> it's a terrible word 
But um, that's, 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 that's how I'm going to describe it. Carelessly heated in vats is the prison food. A Shigella outbreak hospitalizes 80 inmates because a worker has placed feces to the food. Which he contrasts with this ancient art of eating food in a Zen monastery. Food is consumed hastily as guards shout threats. Is contrasted to the meal prayer or gatha is chanted in honour of those who grow and bring the food. I dare lift my eyes slightly for the briefest of moments. So there is this sense in which the monastery is rigorous. There are rules. There are there are rules that you can break, but these rules are are intrinsically um, desired. They're not they're not imposed. So the the uh, oppression of the prison is contrasted to the the desire for regularity in the monastery kitchen workers steal as much as possible um in the prison tightly crowded tables are filled with murderers addict, addicts the dysfunctional and crazed the clearly evil Dark countenances drain the smiles from any face. Every hour of the day was highly structured. Awakening meals, working, sleeping. In contrast, now the times of cages, of beggared friendships and destroyed love are no more. I am surrounded by children of light. New students are obvious, restless, distracted. Confusion and irreverence are like a rock thrown into a pool of moonlight. This practice is performed on page 46 as if each of us were a sacrament. Now, I could be clutching at straws with this one, which is why I referred to my hermeneutical lens, but it's interesting that Leonard uses the word sacrament here, given that he's using so many Japanese words and Japanese traditions in their original language. Perhaps there is no better word, uh, but this is a word which has fermented in a Christian context um, to mean the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. It is also one of the main words in the novel's subtitle, On Secrets and Sacraments. I'm going to just... Uh, intersect this um, theme of sacrament with a book I've been reading recently called The City is My Monastery by Richard Carter. And this is, this quotation speaks to the Rose of Paracelsus um, in the sense that sacraments, it's a misnomer. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, a appealing and indeed attractive uh, thought that a sacrament is, is 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 just a chemical, but of course, sacrament is is so much more than a chemical. A, a sacrament is a way of treating people um, and a way of being with others. And of, in 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 this chapter, when he when Len, when uh, the protagonist describes treating other people as sacraments, I think this quote uh, from this book, "The City of Is My Monastery," will help elucidate what we might mean by this this term sacrament which is a not just part of the title but a big theme of the book outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace it's very easy to see a psychedelic as a sacrament it's a it's a chemical 
that binds to certain receptors and often elucidates and provokes uh, deeply spiritual, numinous, mystical phenomena or experiences or qualia in the human mind. So there is this physical pole and then there's this um, experiential pole. But a sacrament isn't just a chemical. So, and that's, I think, a really, really important theme in the book as a whole and also uh, in, in this chapter as well. So this is, a, this is taken from Richard Carter's book, The City is My Monastery. Daniel told me about Brian, who had for 30 years slept on the same bench outside St. Andrew's by the wardrobe. Each week he visited him with the street rescue team. They tried to persuade him to visit the hostel, but he didn't want to come in. Too claustrophobic. Too many other people. This was his home. This bench. His ceiling, the sky. But over the years, he learnt to trust Daniel. Then one day, completely, unexpectedly, he said he would come. He was frail. His clothes were soaking wet. Daniel helped him. Don't leave me, sir, he said so politely. Don't leave me, please. He was wearing several layers of socks. They had been on his feet for so long they had disintegrated, had to be gently peeled away from his skin. Daniel washed his feet. That must have been difficult, I said. No, Daniel said. I felt so privileged that he allowed me to do this for him. It felt the most holy thing I had ever done in my life. It was sacrament. It was not long after that Brian died. It was as though he wanted to prepare himself for burial. Do this in remembrance of me. So, on page 50 and 51, he describes the gong as being gravity. Gravity itself. The gong is this thing which keeps the monastery uh, grounded, um, upright, and uh, in connection with itself. In spite of the chapter containing no LSD, it still contains altered states, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, and the constant to and fro between inner transformation and outward sacrifice. Uh, the traditional theological meaning, as we said, being an outward sign of an inward grace, this sacrament idea. So just, just to... Uh, illustrate one experience that that he has um and and it kind of uh, anticipates a lot of the um more um espionage themed elements of the trips to come later on in the book on the roof he has this experience the brilliant open western sky is blue and hard the spire of the carolyn at the berkeley campus pierces a low fog across the bay its own temple bells are calling the academic faithful to their devotions so here we have another parallelism um, which is the academic faithful to their devotions another form of enlightenment it is a tolling to which i too ultimately must yield as is my heritage but reborn in this cleansing practice at Hoshinji, I vow to remain until these precepts can be applied to scholarly effort, the promise of new life. To the south is Stanford and Silicon Valley, their bandwidth electrifying our planet. I bow in the direction, in honour of the beings we are all becoming. Yet, as a cloud passes before the sun, I notice to the northeast the Federal Building. 
There, technology is being turned inward upon us through fearsome surveillance methods and databases with millions of files instantly retrievable for monitoring subjects of interest. Against the shadow's coldness, I pull my sitting robe closely, anticipating that such careful scrutiny of the population is leading to Indra's net, the Sufi concept of a universe of eyes looking at each other, but this time in judgment. Perhaps they still consider me a target, one who inexplicably has gone to ground in a religious retreat. So there are loads of things here um, in this in, in the quotation. Firstly, there's this notion of surveillance and control, which is a huge theme in the book. And uh, although it's not, and it's a theme in this chapter, um, the prison, the, um, the, the the macro, um, in in terms of uh, Silicon Valley and uh, the espionage networks that look plough through our data technology being turned inward upon us through fearsome surveillance methods and databases with millions of files so um although this isn't an altered state per se um he is nevertheless aware of his psychogeography and his positioning in 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 the world and it's not like meditation makes all this go away on page 51, incredibly moving and also anticipates future chapters. We, it was revealed that the protagonist once worked in emergency rooms, helping people fight for life, for their, for their survival. And um, memories of volunteering in emergency rooms, page 51, the trauma of San Francisco General Hospital, four dying 19-year-old double dates now screaming on gurneys, a vehicular mass casualty from the driver's cocaine overdose and cardiac arrest. Only 20 minutes earlier, they were speeding over the Bay Bridge, music blasting, laughing, drinking, snorting lines, rushing, horny, clutching to the girl's silky thighs, unconscious of the beast, about to pluck them all. To survive, shrieking to their voiceless friends now quiet as death. Blood everywhere, the driver's ribcage sliced open without anaesthetic, pried apart with a steel rib spreader for hands-on direct massage. The most extreme remedy, life's last chance. All walk, stunned from the trauma room, to their private confrontations with God, before the next patient, in a line that never ends. So, I mean, it's it's astonishing in its scope, this chapter, even though, as I, as I keep saying, it doesn't contain induced altered states through, through LSD. The meditative state in itself brings all these uh, memories to the surface. And so he's not just exorcising himself from the demons of, of prison, but he's also, um, he's also uh, finally being given the chance to integrate his, his experiences at, um, at um, A&E, at Accident and Emergency. And it is telling as well um, that, that 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 his descriptions are basically to do with with drug overdoses because one of the one of the core theses of the book uh, is that the, the the types of drugs that a society allows its its individuals to bathe their their neurons in has a huge impact on on the, on the types of morals and ethics um, that uh, that are allowed to instantiate and are allowed to develop in that society to quote from the previous chapter when he asks um crimson 
do you believe that the, the, the mass um, availability of psychedelics to a society is in aggregate benign? And it seems when faced with experiences like this, with drugs that can actually help to alleviate addictive tendencies, um, in contrast to drugs that don't just generate addictive tendencies, but are in themselves incredibly destructive. So yeah, page page 53. Latinos deranged on PCP with lacerated skulls from baseball bats, their wrists broken from struggling while handcuffed to gurneys. Countless young mothers in wheelchairs delivering in elevators as life giveth and taketh away. The wealthy and prominent rendered mute and helpless by stroke, now quickly discarded. So the reason he's he's describing these is because he's having these re-envisionings of his memory through meditation. Um, he describes, with only a beginner's mind, not yet quick to notice long submerged feelings arising, I finally recognise the florid cognitive display. I awake to return to the breath. I vow to act compassionately. It seems so simple. I become as a tranquil, clear stream. So I kind of seeing this as a pun on the notion of a beginner's mind, which is a Buddhist term intended to encourage practitioners to see the world anew in each moment. So as much as your day may involve the same rituals, waking up, breakfast, um, the commute or whatever it involves, um, the, 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 the Buddhist idea of a beginner's mind is to experience the world anew each moment because even though there is that regularity each moment contains within itself a, a novelty a newness of life even regular tasks practiced for centuries um, can be all there is to do you know, nothing else to do it can be contentment because each moment brims with novelty and the protagonist here is is using this beginner's mind here self-effacingly i only have a beginner's mind but yeah of course beginner's mind is, is the goal as well so as well as his kind of experiences and his 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 you know de decompression of his traumas um he is manifesting this change in himself to do good in the world sweeping the sidewalk around hoshinji um in robe and sandals um so this community service again parallels his time behind bars, but 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 he's enjoying it. Um, and again on page fifty three, he sees, you know, candy wrappers, cigarette butts from the hedges. There are crack vials, wine bottles, prophylactics. It's from the nearby project. So he's very much seeing uh, the dark side of of drugs, and he and in in the later exorcisms that that, that the six um, engage in, they are. Um, all to do with 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 the um, exorcising of the demons of drug addiction. So this combination here of secrecy and sacrament is very much um, compellingly illustrated in in the protagonist's relationship with Okusan, who is a survivor of the nuclear blast at the end of World War Two. Uh, my secret self can only bow to her in veneration. This nuclear blast is described in a really, in a way that somehow manages to capture the, the tragedy and be beautiful, yet not be indulgent. What, of course, is significant about the nuclear blast and uh, is mentioned at other points in the book is that 
the the year in which the nuclear bomb was discovered was the same year in which um, Albert Hoffman discovered LSD, and so there is this um, this constant uh, parallel, this ironic parallel between the destructive explosion um, in the physical world and the the psychic explosion of of the discovery of LSD. Page 56, a sunrise that never ended, a star on earth, a multi-headed dragon that spread across the horizon, it ate the very sky. The images of the slaughtered were written on its face. Hiroshima. Um, the shockwave came next, the howling of a trillion banshees, the instant flattening of buildings, bridges. And the reason he can describe this is because of his relationship with Okusan. The survivors saw grisly humanoid figures as they collapsed into dust. Japanese families were naked in the river, their clothes burnt off. They looked like great blisters. Some had no faces. Others moved with their arms out, flesh hanging in shreds as they were reaching for a lost world. It was so eerie, there was no sound but for the weeping. This in some way, is, is the first instance in the book of, of demonography. But it is an unafraid, compassionate, firm, and evocatively descriptive without fetishizing the uh, demonic influences on humankind. This book is not an airy-fairy book from Erewid. It's a book which takes seriously the human capacity, um, capability, and culpability in real evil. It does not just, as we shall see in the last chapter, imagine future evils. It's unafraid to look long and hard at what, as the human race, we are capable of, both the good and the bad. And again, this, this comparative religious stream comes in when Okusan sings a Christian hymn to comfort herself. The Song of the Precious Mirror, Sandokai, on page 62-3, is incredibly... Um, illustrative um, as well. Now you have it, preserve it well, a silver bowl filled with snow, a heron hidden in the moon. Move and you are trapped, miss, and you fall into doubt and vacillation. Turning away and touching are both wrong, for it is like a massive fire. To portray in literary form is to stain with defilement. In the darkest night it is perfectly clear. In the light of dawn, it is perfectly hidden. Life facing a precious mirror. Form and reflection behold each other. In the end, it says nothing, for the words are not yet bright. Penetrate the source and unravel the pathways. You would do well to respect this. Do not neglect it. With cause and conditions, time and seasons, it is serene and illuminating. So minute when it enters where there is no gap. So vast it transcends dimensions. A hair's breadth deviation and you are out of tune. Whether teachings and approaches are masters or not, reality constantly flows. An archer with skill can hit a mark at a hundred paces. But when the arrows meet head on, how can it be a matter of skill? With practice hidden, function secretly, like a fool like an idiot. To do this continuously is called the host within the host. 
when the protagonist um, gets this incredible news, I mean, he's been rejected from all these medical schools and then really prestigious medical schools that he's applied for and then gets accepted to be um, um, a drug policy analyst at Harvard, even with a history of of, um, uh, of prison because of... Um, a mis uh, what what's described as a, a misunderstanding of a lab equipment, but you know he has this this record of, of prison um, associated with with drug production, um, misassociated, but uh, but um, associated nevertheless. And yet Harvard, the the one of the most prestigious universities, not just in the United States but in the world, has invited him to be a, um, to their graduate school, to the Harvard Kennedy School of Government as a drug policy fellow. And, and when, he, uh, when he has to tell the chief nun, it's revealed that he's been there for three years. Um, and feelings, it's just in page 63, feelings soon overcome theological discourse. The final two pages of the chapter are very moving. Um, it's revealed that the protagonist, yeah, he's been he's been living there for three years, and it's it's very easy to typecast Buddhist doctrine um, as encouraging this kind of cool detachment, um, even an apathy. Um, many uh, many people have kind of strawmanned Buddhism for that that is apathetic, but Leonard nips this in the bud at the protagonist's response to the abbess's question: "What have you learnt here?" And in response, he cries. The protagonist cries um, and says, I will miss you. So this monastery was a treasured haven. We are reminded of the restless and unfocused ghost of his past. And we feel trepidation when the image of the dragon returns, having been used previously to describe a nuclear explosion. Now the mouth into which he steps, with only a hair's breadth's deviation, but still in tune? Thus concludes Chapter 2 of the Rose of Paracelsus podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening. We'll leave you here with another message from Leonard, reading a letter he received recently from Brother David, which offers some solace in these dark times and his thoughts on the pandemic. Once again, I'm Alexa. And I'm Kat. Onwards and upwards. I just received, in closing, I, I just received a, an email from Brother David. This is, of course, in the height of the pandemic. And so I leave you with this message about handling this crisis from Brother David. And this is to all of us. Here it is. I know that you are doing everything in your power to bring healing to the suffering. This pandemic is causing great suffering to the world, but is also offering a great gift. If we also avail ourselves of the gift, we will be able to help a new world emerge from this crisis. The gift is silence. The whole week of Easter is a time of great silence in the Christian monastic tradition. Silence 
is the face of suffering. Silence embracing suffering in one big healing embrace. As an aside, Brother David included a photograph he took of a statue called the Duomo of Taramina in Sicily, which shows both suffering and healing. And he closes, as a token of our loving communion in these days, I am wishing you, in spite of all, the deep joy of silent communion. Your brother, David. And so, friends, I close also with Brother David's statements. Let us help a new world emerge. This is Leonard. As you know, the program that we just listened to was produced by Alexa and Kat Lakey under some rather difficult circumstances, and as such, it really isn't my place to intrude on their program. However, uh, well, I just can't keep my ideas to myself right now, so I apologize in advance to Kat, Leonard, and everyone else involved uh, for stepping in here. Now, in tonight's live salon, we'll be discussing the sort of Niagara of crises that we are facing right now. You know, ten days ago, when I first heard the message from Brother David that uh, Leonard just left us with, well, it made perfect sense to me. At the time, the bulk of the news was about the pandemic. But then, a rogue policeman in Minneapolis murdered Mr. George Floyd and murdered him in cold blood. You know the rest of the story, and it's currently unfolding. Well, there are many thoughts that I have about this that I would like to share with you, but I'm going to leave that until tonight's live salon, which, by the way, you can find a link to on our Discord server, and you'll find that link over on our homepage at psychedelicsalon.com. The one thought that I would like to leave you with right now, however, has to do with Brother David's message to us. While I do understand his advice about staying silent, And while I recognize the fact that, compared with an enlightened person such as Brother David, my personal opinion isn't really worth very much, but nonetheless, I have a gut feeling that, well, maybe after seeing what's going on with racial hatred and injustice here in the States, well, he might revise his thinking about silence just a little bit. In my opinion, silence about racial inequality is what has brought us to this point in time. I, for one, refuse to remain silent anymore about police brutality against black people in the United States. This isn't something new. For example, during the past two decades, almost 200 people have been killed by police just in Minnesota. And my guess is that the number is much higher in some of the other 49 states. And that's why I agree with the protesters who are carrying signs that say, silence equals death. I believe that right now is a time for all of us to stand up and be counted. Speak up, peacefully demonstrate, and work with your local community to make this a better place to raise our children and grandchildren. 
In other words, act like the intelligent, caring human being you are. We all are, in fact. So let's show it. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>